Now Mark chapter 6 opened with Jesus returning home. His hometown, that of Nazareth. And as we looked at examining the first six verses of chapter 6, there were two reactions Jesus got to his return. First, there was a group, the majority by which, that rejected Jesus. They rejected his ministry. We're told that they were offended at him. They were offended. Jesus had left a retired carpenter only to return as a rabbi. They were scratching their head. He, he had these disciples, and they rejected his ministry. And I'm sure with trepidation, with grief, with angst, Jesus moved on, but not without there being a second reaction. The majority rejected, they were offended, but there was a minority. There was a remnant that responded in faith. We're told that Jesus, though he could do nothing with that majority that rejected his ministry, healed and ministered and radically affected the lives of a few. Either way, the big lesson we get from our examination of Jesus' time in Nazareth, it's a big principle. It's the idea that Jesus will permit rejection. It's a heavy thought. There are extreme theological ramifications for the idea, but when it's all said and done, Jesus is willing to be rejected. Though Jesus will do everything in his power to draw us to himself, to demonstrate his love to the point of even dying for our sins, the one thing that Jesus will not do is force himself upon anyone. Now, starting in Nazareth, over the next year, the last year of Jesus' ministry, we're going to see the opposition to his ministry grow bolder and bolder and bolder as they look for a moment to do Jesus in. Now, knowing that that's the case, Jesus is going to take some time to prepare his disciples for his inevitable death. The rabbi decides it's time to give his disciples a little one-on-one, -on -one, on-the-job training. Verse 7, so he called the twelve to himself. And we're told that he began to send them out two by two, and he gave them power over unclean spirits. Now this is the first of two occasions that we'll see Jesus sending out disciples for practical ministry experience. In this instance, Mark is clear that Jesus sends out the twelve. Luke records a similar event. But Luke also gives for us a second occasion where Jesus does this. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus charges 70 disciples, not just the twelve, with the same commission. So two times, Jesus gives his followers some on-the-job training. Beginning here with the twelve, and Mark's clear this is just the twelve, and then later on with the seventy. Mark tells us that Jesus here begins to send them out two by two. Now the phrase to send is the Greek word apostolo, which is where we get the English word apostle. The word apostle literally means one who's been sent. You'll find that disciples, meaning one who learns, can be apostles, and apostles are undoubtedly disciples. So the two aren't mutually exclusive. Here we find this word, apostolo, being used for the twelve, then being sent out. But you should note in 
Luke chapter 10, when Jesus sends out the 70, we also see the same word being used for their ministry. An apostle simply is one who is sent out. But Jesus tells us, Mark tells us concerning Jesus something else that's interesting here. We're told that Jesus gave them, the apostles, the 12 power. Now, English. English is a, a really bad language, actually. It's kind of a, one of these languages that handicaps our understanding of more complex ideas. We, we understand that going from the Greek to the English, sometimes we don't have parallel words in the English to really fit the description we find in the Greek. A wonderful example of this is the word love. Uh, we use the word love in the English for all kinds of things. I love my wife, but I love my dog. Now, I love ice cream. It's the same word to describe an emotion, but we understand that it's not the same emotion. There's no doubt that I love my dog a lot more than I love ice cream, but I love my wife a little bit more than I love my dog. <laughs> and so you understand that there's this separation of how the words work from the Greek to the English, love as an example. But there's another example that's important for us to understand and for you to recognize, especially because a lot of bad theology has come out of confusion to the word power we find here. Jesus sent them, the 12, and he gave them power. And we see in Scripture in the New Testament that power is given on many occasions to not just the twelve, but to other disciples. Understand that failing to recognize the difference between the power given to these twelve men and the power promised to the church has developed really tragic theology. In Luke chapter 10, you should note that there's no power given. When Jesus sends out the 70, there's no power given to them, no power bestowed. No power like he gives to the 12 here, no power like he'll promise to the church in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, you'll find that Jesus promises the 120 before his ascension that they should return to Jerusalem, and he promises that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit would come upon them. Now the word we find in the Greek translated into the English word power, is the word dynamis. Now this is where we get actually our word dynamite. And the word for power here means an inherited strength. That the Holy Spirit would come upon you and you would receive dynamic strength. God-given strength. Inherited strength from the empowering and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But in Mark 6 verse 7, the word power we find here that Jesus gives to the apostles for them to do ministry is not the word dynamis. The word power here in the Greek is the word exousia, which means power bestowed by a king. It's a kingly power given as a right, as an inheritance. Understand, the Greek word exousia, this kind of power, is never given to the church. You'll never find, when you crack open your Greek version of the New Testament, exousia 
that kind of power being given to the church or any other disciples, the only place we find it is Jesus giving it here to the apostles, to 12 men. For the student of scripture, the only other place we even find the word mentioned, and it's interesting, is in the book of Revelation when we're told that God gave power to the Antichrist to be able to perform supernatural works, supernatural signs, supernatural wonders. It is a kingly power bestowed for a very specific purpose. We find it given to the apostles, the 12. We find it even given to the Antichrist. It's never given to the church. And exousia power has never been promised to you and I. Now, by failing to recognize the distinction, really, of the word power, the power given to the apostles and the power promised to the church, and by making the mistake, and it's an easy mistake to make because, well, the English just uses one word, bad theology has been formed, and really two theological extreme positions have become, well, preeminent. First, since apostolic power, the power that we see demonstrated through the apostles. Since we don't really see that kind of power present in today's church, the modern church, the American church, because we look around and we don't see that new scripture is being written and we read through the book of Acts and we see some of the work that that God did through Peter and through John and later through Paul, some of the apostles, some of the 12. We, We think, well, okay, The apostolic power, the power given to the apostles, like I don't see that given or see that demonstrated in the church. That doesn't seem rational or logical. Like I don't see like, you know, someone walking by and their shadow, like healing people of diseases. That doesn't happen today. And so because that doesn't happen today and the same power given to the apostles was also given to the church, I'll just conclude that since it's all one and the same, that the power that the apostles have and the, and the power promised to the church by the Holy Spirit, the power here and the power in Acts, well, since I don't see apostolic power, I'll just conclude that Holy Spirit power It's not really given to all generations of the church. Like, that's not really for me. And instead, it was only limited to this first generation, the apostolic church. Apostolic power, Holy Spirit power, it's all the same. And so it's not really demonstrated. It was just for that generation. And thus, this theological position is very common for you to have a minimizing understanding and presentation of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was for the first generation. It was for a unique work through the apostolic church. And so we don't see gifts of prophecy, the gifts of tongues. We don't see uh, all of these gifts of the Holy Spirit. That was for a different day. It's not present in today's church. Now, mainline denominations hold this position, such as Baptists and Methodists and Presbyterians that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are not for today. And their logic is that the power was just for the apostolic church. Now, the other extreme to this pendulum, and this is important, the other extreme is that there are those who say, well, Holy Spirit power is present in today's church. And since Holy Spirit power is present in today's church, and it's the same thing as apostolic power, then there should actually be apostles. Like, that the same power given to the first generation, because it's all in the same, is also given to this generation because I see the Holy Spirit power at work. Now, the position 
this particular position, this theological slant, is, is often hyper-Pentecostalism. It's often demonstrated where there will be men who say, well, we see that the Holy Spirit's power is at work, so I'm also going to say that there's apostolic power at work, which means that I have kingly bestowed authority. You see this in often black liberation churches. You see them in seeker, uh, not necessarily seeker-friendly churches, but you'll see them in, in health and wealth, faith-healing churches, where a man will claim apostolic authority, apostolic power, such as what we find here given in the, the Gospel of Mark. That the same power given to these 12 men is also given to that man. Now, now the problem the problem is that both positions are formulated through a faulty understanding of what the word power literally means, and also kind of that they're both right and they're both wrong at the same time. Like That's really the ultimate difficulty here when examining this. Yes, the power, exousia, given by Jesus to the 12 apostles is indeed unique, never promised to the church, and was only intended for these 12 men. The apostles were given kingdom authority by Jesus to represent Christ, to author scripture, and to establish, to be pillars of the church. So we see that power, exousia, was only given to the apostles, but the power or the dynamis provided by the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts is not just promised to that church, but you'll find it all over the New Testament promised continually to every Christian, every generation, that the gifts from a, a very simple reading are often given to us. The Bible is clear that the power imparted by the Holy Spirit has been available to all believers at all time. And so you, you understand how a simple misunderstanding of what power actually means here in Scripture has led to two ends of the the pendulum, both right, both wrong, both developed from a misunderstanding, when the most balanced biblical approach is to find yourself in the middle saying, well, the power given to the apostles is unique. But the power given to the church, that's for me. You'll find a balanced approach here in the middle. Now, though the power given to the apostles is different from the power given to the disciples, the commission to both is, is actually almost identical. The commission, the, the ministry, what Jesus commands these 12 to go out and do is extraordinarily similar to what Luke records Jesus giving to the 70, to then what Jesus gives to the 120 and is given to every generation of Christian of believers since. Verse 8, Jesus commanded them to take nothing for their journey, except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper, and their money belts, sandals, not to put on two tunics. Now, Jesus is telling them to travel light. I guess the lesson we can pull from his instruction is that Jesus wanted them to learn dependence. Understand that this is a period of time. Jesus is training. This is on the job. They're going to succeed. They're going to fail. There's going to be experience. They're going to share. Jesus is saying, travel light, go smooth, 
go out, depend on me, depend on your heavenly father. And this would be great training because these men, if you do your own study of the ministry of these 12 after the ascension and where they end up going and where they take the gospel, this lesson of dependence, of trusting the Lord, that God will take care of our needs, this would serve them well over the long run. But Jesus also said to them, in whatever place you enter, stay there till you depart from that place. And whoever will not receive you nor hear you when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Jesus is saying, if someone accepts you into their home, be hospitable. Go in, stay there. Be kind. Be grateful. Be courteous. If someone rejects you, well, Jesus gives them instructions. First, depart. Don't cause a stink. Don't cause a commotion. Don't be a jerk for Jesus. Just leave. No, sorry that you feel this way. I'm going to Move on. Then Jesus says, shake off the dust from under your feet as a testimony against. And that's kind of a, a weird instruction. And, and without some of the, the historical or cultural understanding of first century Judaism, you might miss the point. It was common for very hyper-religious spiritual circles within Judaism that when you traveled abroad, when you went to some of the surrounding pagan nations, when you were to return to the homeland, it was common for them to stop a caravan, uh, for everyone to get out, and when they entered the promised land, for them to literally shake off the dust from their feet, to kind of knock off the, the dust in a symbolic sense that I'm coming back to holy land after being in the midst of the pagans, and so I am removing whatever pagan dirt might be on me and kind of the sense of like, shame on you, you disgusting people. I'm coming back to the holy land. I've got to cleanse myself as I return to the land. Now this happened when you were traveling. It was also customary when you went to worship. There was all kinds of washing and rituals, sensing like physical dirtiness as being a picture of spiritual dirtiness. So I've gone into the world. I've gone into these pagan cultures. I've rubbed shoulders with the sinners and now I'm coming back to the promised land. I need to cleanse myself. It was this customary picture. Now, it's fascinating because Jesus is telling Jewish men, his disciples, the 12, that if they went into a Jewish town and they were rejected, well, leave, depart. Don't worry about it. There's no need to pick it. There's no need to get a, a petition together. Just leave, depart. And then when you get to the edge of the town, look back, shake off the dust as a testimony against them. Like, let them know that what you're, you're not rejecting me. Like, that I'm here representing someone else. I'm here representing Jesus. Jesus is representing God. You're rejecting me? You're not rejecting me. You're rejecting God. And there was this testimony. And I can see the point being made. They depart, they get to the edge of town, people are like, good riddance, and what do they do? They turn, it's kind of like, I'm done with you. They shook off the dust, and they moved on as a testimony. 
But then there's another aspect to this that's important. You see, we're to depart, they're to depart, shake off the dust. But then Jesus is making the point to trust that God would enact an appropriate amount of retribution. Jesus says, shake off the dust, leave, depart. Don't worry, don't make a stink, don't try to get back. You're going to get rejected, it's going to happen. But just trust that I'm going to deal with this at some point. He even goes so far as to say that it would be better for those that lived in Sodom and Gomorrah than it would be for them. Now that's a pretty heavy comment. Because if you go back to the book of Genesis and you look at the story surrounding God's judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, you'll find incredible immorality, and paganism, and wickedness. From their sexual improprieties to their full-blown hedonism, the, the folks of Sodom and Gomorrah were perverted. There were few righteous. God destroyed the city with fire and brimstone. It's an unbelievable story. And Jesus is making the comment that it would be better for them than it will be for these people. These people were not pagans. They were not hedonists. They were not sexually perverted. From the world's perspective, they were moral. They were good people, good folks, homely, kind. They were good kosher Jews. Now that's interesting because understand we can observe here what I like to call the principle of proportional judgment. We find this in scripture. The statement made by Jesus that it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city, it illustrates, well, really two things. What's a greater sin? Their outward signs of rebellion or their religious pride of false moralism? Apparently, Jesus is making it clear that them rejecting him them being stubborn in their religion, fanatic in their moralism, that that ticked God off more than the blatant, obvious sin. But we also see that God judges in proportion to revelation. And that's important. The amount of revelation that had been given to the residents of Sodom and Gomorrah, to these cities, Really, from what we can tell, it was just Lot. And if you know anything of Lot, bad witness. I mean, yeah, he might have been included in the family of faith as a descendant, as a family, as kin to Abraham, but Lot was kind of a moron. And Lot had set himself up. Lot was to be a light, an example. Lot was a failure. That's really the only revelation. The angel comes in, comes into town. I guess that's more revelation Little revelation, God judges based upon it. But the point here is that these cities, this generation that these men went into, they had God in the flesh dwelling in their midst. That they had the apostles coming, preaching, teaching, demonstrating the truth. Sodom and Gomorrah, we see a little amount of revelation and a great judgment. But Jesus is being clear here that the judgment given to these cities will be greater than Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? It's proportioned to their incredible amount of revelation. So the amount of revelation that a person's been given means a heftier amount of accountability 
and a greater judgment to the decisions that they make. Which, truthfully, is a very dangerous thing for modern Christianity. Because we have incredible revelation. Not only do we have God's word at our fingertips, but we have the cross looking back. We have the ministry of Jesus there. You see, I, I think not only was, was it a warning shot to these cities, but to us. God will judge us based upon what we do with what we know. The greater the revelation, the more the judgment. The greater the accountability. The law, the principle of proportional judgment. So we're told, verse 12, that they went out and they preached that people should repent. And they cast out many demons. They anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now there's three things that these guys go out and do. First, we're told that they preached that the people should repent. Now their activity is that they preached, which was fitting as disciples of a rabbi whose primary ministry was preaching, it was fitting that they would go out and preach. What did they preach? They regurgitated what they heard Jesus preach. It's a good thing to do. If you come to church and you hear something and you learn something, that's a great lesson for you to just go out and communicate. Really preaching, it's interesting. Preaching was their activity, not their occupation. Like we often kind of develop like preaching. I use that as my occupation. I love to preach. Often many of the people sitting in the pews are like, well, that's what he does. That's not what I do. We're all called to preach. Preaching is literally to announce news to others. It's a pronouncement. It doesn't mean that you have to communicate some great truth. It's that you're making a pronouncement, an announcement of what? Of what Jesus has done for you, of what he's revealed to you. Understand when you go to work, like you don't have to like, let's open coworker to the book of Jeremiah chapter two. This morning, we're going to be starting in verse four. Like that's not what we've been all called to do, but we have all been called to make announcements to, to say, let me tell you what Jesus has done for me. Let me announce the good news. Let me communicate. They went out and they preached. But their goal, the activities preaching, their goal, well, the goal was repentance. Now, sometimes we get this, well, they went out and they preached repentance. And in our minds, we immediately think of the guys with the signs out in front of the Braves game, yelling at people to turn or burn, to get right or get left, that they're going to hell if they don't repent and follow Jesus. And we get this idea of, of repentance being their, their message, that it was a hard one, it was a harsh one, that they were going around giving people guilt trips, calling people on sin, making people feel bad, that the worse I can make someone feel, the more likely they are to follow Jesus. Like, where did that become a good strategy? The goal of their preaching was repentance. It wasn't their method. That, that's what's being communicated. The word repentance literally means to change one's mind. The goal of their message, the result of their preaching, the desired effect that they wanted to see by communicating the good news that Jesus loved them was that someone would change their mind about Jesus and become a follower. Like we often just kind of get bent out of shape about this idea of repentance and our preaching, especially even when we look back at, at John and his ministry. It's to change someone's mind. It's to persuade someone to about face and to change the way that they were thinking. Their preaching, no doubt their preaching included 
their own personal story. Their preaching included what Jesus had done on their behalf. Their preaching included the love of God. Their preaching wasn't all about judgment and wrath. Say, hey, I've given my life to this guy. Let me tell you why. With the goal to be repentance. So first they preached that people should repent. Second, we see that they exercised demons, that they cast out demons. They engaged in spiritual warfare. Thirdly, they ministered to people practically. And, and, and obviously we see Jesus doing all of this. Jesus goes to a town. He would go to the synagogue. He would preach. He would cast out demons. He would minister. He would heal people. We're told that they anointed with oil many who were sick. This phrase, anointed with oil. Well, first it's interesting because it literally means oiling them with oil. It's not that they took some olive oil and splashed it on their thumb and rubbed their forehead with it. It's that they would take oil and basically pour it over top of them, like oiling with oil, like you were lubed up when they were done with you, like they were covered in oil, like it's crazy. But what's bizarre about this, this phrase, anointed with oil, is we kind of are familiar with it, I think, in Christian circles. Uh, Protestants, I guess, to a degree. Catholics, if you have any history with Catholicism, oil's a big deal. Oil's not a big deal in the New Testament. It's kind of odd, this idea of anointing with oil. We only find mentioned in one other place. We find it here, that the twelve would go out and they would anoint with oil. But then we're told in James chapter 5, verse 14, the only other instance that James tells the believers, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the sick. Now, obviously, we know that oil is a typographical picture of the Holy Spirit. To anoint with oil would be symbolic of, of the Holy Spirit. Understand that James is not telling the believers that the oil, you know, is anyone sick? Call for the elders of the church, anoint them with oil. Is that what healed them? Not according to James. According to James, he said, and the prayer of faith will save the sick. You see, it's interesting, and I don't want to go on a tangent here, but maybe just to provide an explanation of what I think is being described not only by Jesus, by Mark, but also by James, is that sometimes our faith, faith needs an object. Like if you were to come before the church and the elders were to pray over you and anoint you with oil, is there anything about the oil that's metaphysically healing you? No. There's no example of that happening. But it's, an, it's a moment. It's a physical event. It's something happening. And I think oftentimes that helps our faith. That it's, it's the oil, it's the moment, it's the prayer, it's an object. But what heals? Well, it's faith. Faith is what heals. There's another theory about this that I'll just throw out there. One commentator mentioned that anointing with oil also had a medical purpose in the ancient world. Um, it was kind of a customary, traditional uh, 
folklore that oil would heal people. And this commentator said that this could be a reference of actually the apostles going, providing proper medical treatment, and healing many people that were sick. Um, don't really know, other than the fact that it's interesting, um, seeking medical attention is not a lapse of faith. Uh, you'll never find that mandated in Scripture. Uh, who heals people? D does a doctor actually ever heal anyone of anything? The answer is no. Like, the miracle that takes place is God. I mean, the human body is pretty amazing in and of itself. The fact that we can, we can have disease, diseases and the body takes care of it. That you can cut open your arm, and if you can just hold together the pieces of skin long enough, they stick back together and then heal themselves. Like, the human body is amazing. It's pretty radical. The healing, the miracle is God always. Whether it's a doctor that puts you on the right path towards the miracle, or whether it's just coming and receiving prayer. Either way, the miracle's always the Lord. And so maybe this is a reference to them going out and providing some practical health care. I think one of the greatest avenues of missions is medical missions. Sending trained people into the third world to provide actual medical care, knowing that the ultimate healing, it always comes from the Lord. Now my first observation here is first that the concept, and we're familiar with this story, I mean, this is, at this point, we haven't gotten into anything kind of radical. This is familiar territory. Um, Jesus sending out the disciples for ministry, great. But, but you don't understand something about this moment. The concept of Jesus sending people. At this point in human history, the concept, though maybe we're familiar with it, the concept is revolutionary. Now understand something about the flow of Scripture. In the Old Testament, really, for all of history, if you wanted to encounter God, to have an experience, an exchange with the living God, up until this point, the only way anyone encountered God was being called to come. For example, Abraham's in Ur of the Chaldeans. God comes to him and says what? Go, leave, move. Where? To a land I'll show you. I want to do a work in your life, Abraham, but you got to get moving. You've got to go to a land that I'll show you. Come. The, the Israelites are in Egypt. God wants to do a work, right? He says, come back to the promised land. Come back to the promised land. If you wanted to encounter God, you would have to go where? To the tabernacle, to worship, to offer sacrifices. And, and then you would have the temple. You would have to, to come to a centralized location, the temple, to encounter God. As God's people spread out throughout the Roman Empire, probably dating back even further to the Babylonian Empire, well, if people wanted to encounter God and they couldn't get to the temple, they still had to come where? to local meeting places, the synagogue. Most of the Old Testament prophets were raised up from within. There was only one prophet that was told to go, like that was actually sent. That was Jonah, but he's an entirely different story. Even at this point in the ministry of Jesus, though Jesus would come to town, you would still have to come to Jesus, right? You'd still have to come. 
whether coming to the synagogue or coming to the house that Jesus was at or coming to the hillside that Jesus had positioned himself or the shoreline there in Galilee, if you wanted to encounter God, you had to come. The idea at this moment of Jesus completely reversing the table, instead of encountering God as being purely a mechanism of me coming to a central location and instead Jesus equipping his disciples, empowering them for a task, and then sending them out into towns as his proxies with the gospel to preach. The idea, what we find in Mark 6, is without any precedent in Scripture. This concept is completely revolutionary and has never been enacted in Scripture until this moment. You didn't really realize that, did you? I didn't until I was studying this passage. The second thing that the concept of Jesus sending people is to me is that it's symbolic. Now, once again, I might be in left field. But if you do a word study of the phrase two by two, you're going to only find one other predominant story with that phrase. Once again, that's going to place you back in the book of Genesis when God is about to judge the world and he calls, according to the book of Genesis, chapter 7, verse 15, two by two of all flesh and which is the breath of life to come to the ark so they could be saved from judgment. Now, early to save people from judgment to provide salvation to life. It was what? God called and two by two came. But now, the only other time you get the phrase, by the way, Jesus, he sends them out with what? With the good news that Jesus had come to save the world from sin, from judgment. He sends out his disciples two by two. Now, from the obvious benefits of going in a pair, for me, I see a symbolic value in this. Because Jesus, yes, he fulfilled the law, but Jesus came to do something different. Israel was to be a light into the world, a light that the world could come to and see that there was a better way. But when Jesus, when Jesus came, he instituted something new, something unique, something special, to the point that it was no longer about coming, but Jesus called and equipped and then sent out his followers into the world. That, that it's symbolic. The third thing I see here is that the concept of Jesus sending people is practical. You know, the ministry of Jesus, it experienced a very natural limitation. Jesus could only be at one place at a time. Jesus coming as a man, taking on human flesh, he set aside his divine attribute of being omniscient, of being omnipresent, of being immutable. He couldn't be everywhere at once. In his earthly ministry, wherever Jesus was, that's where he was. But following his ascension, Jesus goes to heaven, he would now be able to extend his ministry reach beyond what he could do with human limitation through proxy. You see, Jesus, 
today can be everywhere at all time, not just in the spirit, but he can be there because we are his ambassadors sent to represent our king, that we're called to be Jesus's hands and feet in the world around us. Jesus on earth was limited by human flesh. Jesus in heaven filling his followers with the Holy Spirit, equipping them for the ministry, sending them into the world. Well, Jesus can be in all places at all times. So the idea of Jesus sending people is also practical. The job of a disciple. It was to represent, it was to emulate the rabbi. But no, the disciples' ministry, it looked a lot like Jesus' ministry, and it foreshadows our ministry. Which leads me to another observation before we continue. It's really Christianity 101. Like the disciples training here, Christianity is monkey see, monkey do. The disciples, their job was to sit at the feet of the rabbi, to follow Jesus, to see what Jesus did, to take notes, and then to do what? To go out and to do anything revolutionary, to do anything special, to do anything... No, their job was just to copy what they saw their rabbi doing. It was to see Jesus, to know Jesus, to be ministered to by Jesus, and then to go and do what Jesus had done for them, to others. Jesus has sent you into the world. You're in the world for a reason. You have been sent. You've been saved and sent with three purposes. We find it to preach the word, to announce good news, to engage the enemy. There's a very real spiritual battle among us. Maybe you're not going to be going around casting out demons, you know, in the name of Jesus, with a big cross. But you do engage in a spiritual battle of temptation. Ephesians 6 talks all about the spiritual battle that's taking place all around us. So we preach the word, but we engage the enemy. And then what else are we called to do? That's to minister to people who are sick, to people who are in need to see them experience the same healing that many of us have experienced. Well, verse 14. By the way, this is a weird segment change that Mark's about to, to kind of incorporate. But really, he's talking about disciples, experiencing some on-the-job training, being equipped for their future ministry. And so I guess it, in some ways it's fitting that Mark would now turn to a disciple of Jesus who is completing his ministry. We got some guys who are being prepared for theirs. We have one who's completing his. For King Herod heard of Jesus and his name had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead. And therefore these powers are at work in him. Now others said that Jesus was Elijah. Others said that he was a prophet or like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard, he said, this is John who I beheaded he is raised from the dead. Now, there were three common perspectives or opinions of who Jesus was. Many places in the New Testament and the gospel records, you can put this together. In this passage, we're told of two of them. First, people thought that Jesus could have been Elijah. That was a common opinion floating around the cultural circles, the water cooler, so to speak. According to Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, Elijah had been promised to return to Israel before the king would come. And so some people are seeing Jesus' ministry. They're trying to wrap their brain around it. And so some are thinking, well, maybe Jesus is Elijah. 
Even today, when the Jews celebrate the Passover, part of the, the Seder supper is that they send the kids out to see if Elijah's coming. And the kids will return and say, Elijah's not here. And then the Seder will continue on. The Jews are still looking for the arrival of Elijah. The second opinion of Jesus was that, well, at least he was a prophet. And now that's, that's obvious. Jesus fulfilled almost every capacity of the job of a prophet. Jesus came speaking with authority, speaking God's word. Prophets from the Old Testament all the way up through Jesus, they heralded not their own words, but the word of God. And Jesus would on multiple occasions mention that he was here not to do his will or to communicate anything he desired, but he was here to do the will of his father, that he came as a representative, as a megaphone. Jesus, the ultimate word, the ultimate revelation. In Matthew chapter 16, Peter gives us the third opinion that was circulating because there were those who saw Jesus as the Messiah as the long-awaited king. But we find a fourth opinion. That was not a popular opinion. It was just one drummed up by King Herod, mentioned specifically here in chapter 6. Apparently, King Herod believed that Jesus was either John the Baptist resurrected from the dead, or Jesus was possessed by John the Baptist's spirit. Now, before you just think that this is kind of like the most bizarre, crazy, hypothetical scenario uh, or situation devised by a paranoid little man, there's actually a little bit of weight to his opinion here. According to Josephus, who was a first century Jewish historian, Jesus and John the Baptist actually looked a lot alike, according to Josephus. Now, that's not a crazy theory. They were family, right? Mary and Elizabeth, John's mother, were cousins. So they had similar heritage. They were cut from the same genetic code. So they had similar physical attributes. There's not pictures floating around, you know, Judea and Galilee for Herod to have seen a picture of what Jesus looked like. He just gets word. Maybe he sees him from afar and John's thinking it's, uh, Herod's thinking it's John. The physical appearance is very similar. They, they were close in age, separated by no more than just a couple months, right? So they were the same age from the same family. No doubt they probably looked alike. So that's not crazy. Also, they were both preachers, right? So they both did the same thing and they had similar messages, right? We're also told that many of John's posse, like his entourage, his disciples, when John was arrested, where did they go? They became Jesus's disciples. And so, so think about it. You've got Jesus who looks like John doing the same thing that John did, preaching, and he's surrounded by the same group of people that John had been surrounded by. Not to mention they shared a similar set of enemies. The Pharisees, the scribes, they hated John. They hated Jesus. And Herod was so convinced that John was a just and godly man that he, he believed resurrection for John was entirely possible. Now, in order to provide the backstory between the relationship that Herod had with John the Baptist. Mark is going to flash back in time to an event that occurred more than a year prior. Verse 17, so this is a flashback. For Herod, Herod himself had sent 
And he had laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. And because John had said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife, therefore Herodias held it against John and wanted to kill him. But she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Now, I'm not going to give you a, a gigantic history lesson, but you have to know a little bit of the Herodian dynasty to kind of really understand what's happening here. Herod the Great, the Herod of the Christmas story, the Herod that ordered the execution of all of the, the infants there in Bethlehem, the Herod that interacted with the wise men, Herod the Great, had been appointed king of Judea by Caesar Augustus in 30 BC. He would die in 4 BC. And as a paranoid man, and Herod the Great was he, was, he was a very brilliant man. He built the temple, Masada, there in the south. He was an incredible architect, builder, construction guy, smart man, but was paranoid. Always thought people were out to get him. And so, just in line with that kind of paranoia, Herod killed his first three sons, thinking that they were treasonous and wanted to kill him and take the throne. Now, the third son that had been executed, and you don't necessarily need to know his name, but he had two children of significance that Herod was fond of. They were his grandkids. Though Herod killed their father, he kept the two kids around, kind of protected them. One of these grandkids, her name was Herodias. Herodias would marry Herod the Great's youngest son, Philip which means that Philip, yeah, married his niece, so his dead brother's daughter. One of the other kids was a man by the name of Agrippa. Now, we'll get to him in a moment. Now, when Herod died, being paranoid, he not only murdered sons, but he failed to enact any kind of succession plan. So because Herod didn't have a plan, we're told that Caesar Augustus took Herod's kingdom and divided it into three territories and he gave it to three of Herod's sons that survived, that remained. Archelaus was given one half of the kingdom and Philip and Antipas split the other half of the kingdom, the regions that included Jerusalem and Galilee. Now that's important because Philip, he would travel to Rome on official business and Herod Antipas, the Herod we find here in Mark chapter 6, Herod Antipas would divorce his wife and shack up with Philip's wife, Herodias, who was an older brother's daughter, making Herodias Antipas' niece, who had been married to his brother. All kinds of weird family stuff happening here. It's pretty disgusting. The Herodian, the Herodian dynasty, they were, okay, they were the early ancestors of the folks in Alabama. A lot of family stuff going on. Now, if you're from Alabama, my apologies. Now, it's this family dynamic. Philip going back to Rome. Antipas thinking, I'm done with this broad. My wife gets rid of her, shacks up with his sister-in-law, also his niece. Yeah. 
It's all this going on. That's public knowledge. It's in the open that John the Baptist speaks out about. Like he speaks out about this illegal and immoral marriage. Now, Herodias' reaction is that she wanted John dead. She wanted to kill to silence John. But Antipas's reaction is, well, we're told that he feared John, knowing that he was just and holy, and he protected him, though he would have him later arrested. Herod had a weird fascination with John. Now, my first observation is that, isn't it interesting that we have weird reactions to conviction? Sometimes when we experience the natural conviction of God, we might not change, but we're enamored with it. Like there's a draw to it. Herod Antipas is a picture of this. I mean, he doesn't want to change his behavior, but he fears John. He's fascinated. He doesn't want to get rid of Herodias. He, there's no repentance, but he's just this weird thing going on. So he respects John. He keeps John at a distance, but he doesn't know what to do. He's guilt-ridden. He's experiencing conviction. Herodias' response to conviction is just to silence the messenger. She wants to do away with it. But we can also observe from John's example here is that immoral behavior must always be confronted with the truth. I admire John's boldness. These were connected, powerful people that John was standing up on a pedestal, calling them on the carpet concerning. When we see immoral behavior as followers, as disciples, we have an obligation to be an instrument, to be a voice, not to be a nag, but to be a communicator of truth. That when we see immorality, we shouldn't stand by idly, but we should speak in love, truth into the lives of people that we care about. John saw what was going on and he stood up and he called them on account concerning it. But we're told that an appropriate and opportune day came when Herod on his birthday gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers, the chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias, her daughter herself came in and danced, her name being Salome, she pleased Herod and those who sat with him. And the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want and I'll give it to you. And he swore to her, whatever you ask, I'll give it up to half the kingdom. And so she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask? So Herodias said, the head of John the Baptist. So Salome came in with haste and asked of the king, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Now, this was some party. Herod, the nobles, the alcohol, the strippers. I mean, this is a party. This is going down. They're having a blast. They're high. They're drugs. This is happening to the point that's like, instead of just strippers, Herod has Salome come in. She dances a striptease. Herod's wild. The nobles are wild. And so now like, Little inebriated promises start flowing. Like Herod's party creates this dynamic. Salome comes in and she dances. Now, don't, under, don't miss, like, this is crazy. This is extremely perverted. Not just the striptease, but who this is that Herod's watching. Just place the family connection. I don't know what kind of relationship that is. It's just weird. It's just awkward. So she dances. Herod makes a request. The request is for John's head. Herodias, this plot that she enacts. And we're told that Herod, 
Herod capitulates. He gives in. And we're told that the king was exceedingly sorry. Yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. A little pressure happening. And immediately the king sent an executioner, commanded his head to be brought, and he went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when the disciples heard it, they came and they took his corpse and they laid it in a tomb. Herod, no doubt, fears appearing weak, capitulates, John's executed. Here's my observation. Aside from the historical ramifications of what's happening, the fact from the reality that here's the disciple who ran his race with endurance, the forerunner of Jesus, he meets a tragic end. It's a sad end. But understand that it was just but a moment. And then glory followed. Well done, good and faithful servant. John's race had been won. He had finished strong. He was a disciple to be admired. But here's an observation that I see from Herod, a lesson we shouldn't overlook, that being sorry isn't the end game when it comes to sin. The two things we know of Herod, the two obvious things, is first, his conscience was clearly pricked by the teaching of John the Baptist. He sensed that he was doing something wrong. But second, we're told that he was sorry of what his indiscretions had produced, that it had led to John the Baptist's death. We're told here that Herod was exceedingly sorry, which implies that Herod had more than like a frowny face. Like, oh, I'm bummed out. Like the idea here the, 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 in the Greek is that Herod had become overcome with a sorrow to the point of death. But was that enough? In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, we're told, For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. There are two kinds of sorrow, which makes, and you know how it is with your kids, you catch them doing something they're not supposed to do. You punish them. And they're crying, and there's tears, and there's grief, there's sorrow, right? Does that really matter? Now, that's a good indicator. It's a good start. But what really matters to you? Because if they go out and do exactly what it was they got in trouble for again, were they really sorry? We might just call them crocodile tears, right? Like, you want to see change. Like, that's what we look for in true sorrow. And so we're told that there's two kinds of sorrow that initially look identical. Godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow is not just I'm, I'm bummed out and I'm sorry and I'm emotionally bent that I did this, that I've been behaving this way, but I'm going to do something to change. Godly sorrow produces repentance, which leads to what? Salvation. But we also see worldly sorrow. And worldly sorrow doesn't change behavior. It doesn't produce salvation. As a matter of fact, we're told that it only produces death. It looks the same, but the result is much different. The only way that you can tell is by then observing behavior after sorrow. So what happened with Herod, Antipas, and Herodias? Because we're told here, right, Herod is extremely sorry. Well, does he repent? Is he saved? According to Josephus, immediately following John's execution, 
the whole region erupts in conflict. Herod is drawn into a complicated military conflict with a powerful Arab king. And you might think, well, why would he have done this? That Arab king, his daughter had been Herod Antipas's first wife, the one that he had divorced so he could shack up with Herodias. Now, not only is Herod Antipas drawn into this conflict, which the Romans don't like a whole lot, but the common opinion, according to Josephus, is that this was God's judgment on Herod for not listening to John. Now, because of the unrest, because Rome would ultimately intervene, in 39 AD, Caligula summons Antipas and Herodias to come back to Rome. When they arrive, they discover that Agrippa, right, Herodias' brother, had already been in Rome, had become buddies with Caligula, and had accused Antipas and Herodias his uncle and sister of treason. In the same year, Caligula would banish Antipas and Herodias to Gaul, where history tells us that they killed themselves. On a side note, Agrippa would become king of the region. Caligula would appoint him to be king of the region. And you'll find him again as the Herod that the Apostle Paul deals with, who ultimately puts on the shiny suit and comes into the, the uh, theater there in Caesarea, it's being worshipped and is ultimately eaten by worms. That's that guy. He gets his. But they commit suicide. Now to me, looking at Herod, examining sorrow, it's fitting, right? Like the Bible knows what it's doing, knows what it's communicating. Herod's extremely sorry that his choices have led to John's death. He's bummed, he's grieved, but he doesn't change. And what happens? He dies for it. Worldly sorrow produces what? Death. Now this morning, often there's two things that are happening. The Holy Spirit at work bringing about conviction of sin. And, and, and then immediately there's probably even an emotion that comes with it. One of guilt. Maybe even one of sorrow. The key that separates salvation and death from that moment is whether or not you repent. We see with the disciples' ministry that what was their ministry? They went and they preached good news. Which foreshadows our ministry and the ministry I'm going to have this morning. Being sorry isn't enough. It's changing. Changing your mind, changing your direction, asking for God to change your heart that matters. None of us want death. We all want salvation. But what are you doing? The disciples. Some being prepared, one finishes his race. We're going to see as we continue through Mark chapter 6 that there's more training 
Up ahead, we'll be looking at the feeding of the 5,000 next Sunday. So, Father, with all of that, we thank you for your word and what it says to us. In Jesus' name, amen.